One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Let's go. Three point one four one five nine two six five three five eight nine seven nine three two three eight four six two six four three numbers. They're everywhere. From math textbooks to news headlines, numbers inform us and help us learn more about the world around us. We're more likely to believe the numbers and look to them for factual evidence. And here with the numbers for us today is Dr. Walter Zahradny. Good facts and good numbers are essential for a disorder like autism that's complex and that doesn't have a clear biological marker. It's only by accurate and comprehensive autism surveillance, active case finding, that we're likely to understand and identify the true scope of autism. It's the true scope of autism which is going to inform stakeholders who have to plan for educational interventions and clinical treatments. The more likely we are to estimating properly, the more likely we are to be in a position to provide needed interventions and services quickly to children who are affected by autism. Dr. Zahradny is the principal investigator of the New Jersey Autism Surveillance Investigation, which is conducted along with the CDC and ADAM Network. He is also the Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Clinical Psychologist at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. For more on his mission on finding the latest stats, join us on this episode of Autism Thinks. Welcome to the Autism Things podcast. It's hosted by the New Jersey Autism Center of Excellence, where we bring together the neuroscience, technology, and innovation to a soundscape that'll change your perspectives on all things autism and the world around us, just one episode at a time. With the Adam Network, Dr. Zahradny has recently published reports on the trends in the prevalence of autism spectrum disorder in several states in America. The ADAM network is the Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network, multi-state U.S. autism surveillance system that was established by the CDC in 2000. And all of the ADAM network states use the same definition and methodology and case-finding procedures to identify children with autism in their regions and then to establish autism prevalence estimates and to define the characteristics of children with autism. This is an active two-phase autism surveillance approach which involves wide review of existing information from health and education records, followed by systematic and independent case determination and scoring of characteristics by experts who are 
clinicians familiar with autism and using a CDC case determination process. This is the way that the CDC has designed to understand how many children are affected by autism, is autism increasing, and what are the characteristics or the differences among different populations affected by autism. When the Adam Network started in 2000, there were six sites or six states participating. And now in the most recent cycle and in the cycle published recently, we have um, 11 participants in the Adam Network. It's important to note that here in New Jersey, we have the highest number of individuals diagnosed with ASD. One in 32 of our eight-year-old children were identified with ASD compared to the national average of one in 54. Yes, I would say that New Jersey high, has the highest autism prevalence estimates for two reasons. One, we have access to both clinical health and educational records. Some states in the network only have access to clinical records. And two, I'm sure that the methodology is sensitive to completeness or robustness of information. And in New Jersey, because of a, a strong, progressive, uh, well-funded education system and because of good levels of access to clinical specialists, children with learning behavior or psychiatric problems, neurological problems are more likely to be seen and to be seen by a variety of professional experts and to have opportunities through which their presentation could be carefully described and detailed in the professional evaluations. In addition to these qualitative or access issues, there may also be some effect by urbanicity. The network has initiated some preliminary evaluation which suggests that uh, individuals living in urbanized states are more likely to have autism than individuals raised in rural states or rural environments. And while we're not 100% sure why that is, it's uh, an interesting finding that we'll hopefully be able to follow up on sh soon. And here we stand right now within five miles of two Superfund sites, one of them being the Passaic River itself. So what happens to a community in this nation where you're alienated from your environment in every way? When you're alienated from the air, when you're alienated from the water, when you're alienated from the soil, what happens to a community when there's toxins in the air they breathe, in the water, and as well as in the, in the land? This and is Senator me, Cory Booker outrageous. speaking at a school in Newark, New Jersey. The past year, Senator Booker, when talking about reforms for environmental injustice, mentioned the term Superfund sites. Superfund sites are locations in the U.S. that experience pollution and require long-term responses in cleaning up the harmful materials that contaminate them. New Jersey is one of these states, and it is often said that autism prevalence estimates in these Superfund states in particular have increased. With regard to the effect, possible environmental effects, especially from Superfund sites, there's really, as far as I can tell, one uh, scientific report about that from uh, 2008 in which New Jersey investigators, uh, Dr. Ming and Dr. Brimacombe, I know them, they're 
excellent colleagues and professionals, they published a paper in which they identified a possible correlation between residents near a Superfund site and autism prevalence. This was an interesting and provocative finding, but really I wouldn't think of it as being definitive. The published findings are based not on population-based estimates of autism, but rather they're based on a convenience sample of patients with autism that were seen in one clinical practice. And the clinical practice was based in Newark. So while their findings are interesting, I don't think they're necessarily representative. When we, that is our group, which does population-based surveillance, when we took a look at that question informally, we didn't find that towns with Superfund sites had higher prevalence of autism. Interestingly enough, the distribution of autism cases was in the opposite direction, such that children from uh, affluent towns or children raised in affluent communities were more likely to have autism than children living in the proximity of Superfund sites. Uh, so while there are likely to be some environmental effects, I don't think they're necessarily based on contamination of the soil or the groundwater. There are more compelling reports from California and also a report that our group participated in, which there is an apparent relationship or a correlation between levels of hazardous air pollution and autism prevalence. But those are, while a little bit more solid, those findings also should be replicated and expanded somehow to understand the extent to which uh, hazardous air pollution would be a factor for autism. So while we've got to do more research on potential environmental causes of ASD, there are other disparities that need to be considered. One of Dr. Zahrani's findings is that boys are more likely to be diagnosed with ASD than girls. The ratio of three and a half or four boys to one girl with autism is a true ratio. We've seen this uh, over and over across many cycles in the autism um, monitoring network. Uh, that seems to be a true phenomenon, and I have no insight at all into why boys are much more likely to have autism than girls, but that's something that's confirmed by multiple uh, cycles of surveillance. And with regard to mm, minority groups, our surveillance findings do uh, iterate that it's quite likely that boys, uh, sorry, that children from uh, white, black, and Hispanic, and Asian families are all likely to be equally affected by autism, there are big differences in the extent to which uh, children are identified as having a possible problem and big differences in how many and when children are diagnosed with autism. Minority children, black children and Hispanic children are definitely much less likely to come to attention before 36 months and much less likely to be diagnosed before 48 months. Our study cannot answer why that is the case. We can possibly speculate about what the reasons are, but nonetheless, 
and important action should be taken to redress these um, uh, disparities in detection. Most clearly relevant would be steps that would lead to early identification, like screening of children. One of the most interesting findings that he talks about is the fact that autism prevalence rates have risen over the past years. The current average percentage in the U.S. has been about 200% higher since the year 2000. The most telling phenomenon is that autism prevalence has increased very dramatically across a very brief period of time, and it's increased across all groups that we're able to monitor. It's gone up for boys, gone up for girls, gone up for children from black families, white families, Asian and Hispanic families, and to the point where it's a true public health crisis or true public health phenomenon that needs addressing. And we don't really understand the reasons for the higher increase for the prevalence of autism or for the continuing and in increase in prevalence estimates. That would be the main phenomenon that I would bring to your attention in this in this regard, that really we don't understand what the drivers are for higher autism prevalence, even all even though all the indicators are showing that this is a true increase. An issue that is incredibly important when it comes to autism is diagnosis. Despite the increase, we see that one in four children with ASD have no diagnosis before the age of eight. It's important to get diagnosed in order to provide the support and care that each child needs. And Dr. Zahravani brings up a point about the American Psychiatric Association's DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which serves as the principal guide in diagnosing neurological or psychiatric conditions. A crucial finding that he mentions is that fewer young children satisfy the DSM-5 ASD criteria, or the fifth edition of the DSM, compared to the DSM-4 criteria. In New Jersey, the difference in prevalence was 1 in 33 children for DSM-4 versus only 1 in 40 children for the DSM-5 criteria. With regard to young children, children under the age of 5, that the DSM-5 criteria are much narrower and much less likely to be satisfied by a young child. So if I were talking to clinicians who are uh, diagnosing young children, I would uh, caution them that the DSM-5 criteria are less likely to be satisfied than the DSM-4 criteria. And I would take that into account in diagnosing and informing parents as to what a possible diagnosis would be. And in informing parents and healthcare professionals of better diagnosing ASD, it's important to raise awareness and work towards ensuring every child can get access to resources that can help them. So we've talked about interesting findings as well as concerns from the report. And to end things on a note that looks forward to a better future, Dr. Zahravani shares some ways we can improve. To benefit from greater awareness or greater acceptance, I would say the best that we could do is to encourage and to promote universal autism screening before 36 months of age. That is where there's a uh, bottleneck in detection, and that's where we could exert 
the greatest influence so that we can address this and we could lead to earlier interventions for children. It's really children from minority groups and low-income children who are less likely to come to attention and who could be benefited the most. So I would say if we can do something to improve the screening of children at 18 and 24 months, that would be the first thing I would do. And I would also encourage uh, use of a screener at 30 and 36 months of age so that we could identify children with autism who don't come to attention as early as we'd like. Through this podcast, we've seen how scientific facts and figures can be effective in looking at something as complex as ASD. This is what we really need more of in this field. For more resources and insight on Dr. Walter Zaharani and his team's findings, check out the Adam Network report on the CDC webpage. We've included some links we're checking out in the show notes. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the Autism Thinks podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this week's episode and feel free to give us feedback or suggestions for intriguing topics to delve into. 